On Saturday, May 25, 2002, 22-year-old Army veteran Damien Mark Sharp exited a car driven by his brother's friend, Bryce, at the corner of Prospect and Dahl Streets in the city of Warren, PA. After that, he was never seen again. And 20 years later, the question remains, what happened to Damien Sharp? I'm Stacy Gross, formerly a local reporter in Warren. My co-host, Brian Hagberg, and I have spent the past year investigating and reporting on the case for you in season one of this podcast. We encourage you to go back and listen. Now, we stand at a crossroads. Brian and I have uncovered and shared with you the most complete narrative of this case it's been possible to have, but we're only journalists. We're just storytellers. So when the media have done all they can with the information they've retrieved, what then? We're going to spend this season putting the finest point on this case that we can, and we're going to answer as many questions as we're able to about Damien and his disappearance. But we're also going to take a long look at the human side of the story, Damien's family, and how they've coped with a loss that they can't even be sure has happened. How do you grieve someone you can't find? And how do you continue to maintain hope that a 20-year mystery can be solved when the main characters and the story's action are aging, passing away, and otherwise losing the inclination to talk about what they remember in the worst-case scenario, or can hardly remember anything at all in the best? Whether Damien even left the city that night remains a mystery itself, and if he did wind up in one of the many wild spaces throughout Warren County that have been the focus of organized searches by law enforcement over the years, which one, and with whom, and why? The first season of this show did its best to answer that question and came up short. In the course of the season, people close to Damien took issue with the credibility and the truth of what we were reporting, specifically with the speculation that Damien may have been headed to a party in the woods off Brown Run Road or Forest Road 160 that Saturday night after visiting an associate who lived on Prospect Street. At the end of the day, Brian and I realized Damien is a more complex person than even we knew, and his case is one that doesn't begin to untangle easily. At the end of the last season, we were both unsatisfied with where things stood, so we decided to keep going for this one last season, see what else we could dig up, see who else might be willing to come on tape and talk to you themselves about what they've heard, and to try one more time to find an answer before this show wraps up. We're still working at that, but it's time to release what we've got so far. And if we don't succeed this time, we won't be publishing a third season. That's because Damien's family, with whom the success of this show's idea ultimately rested, has been gracious and forthcoming with their time and their stories. It's an exhausting position to be in, and one they weren't eager to take back up after 20 years of settling into the uncertainty of how Damien's story ended. Out of respect for them, I've decided that whatever we get this season is what we get, and then they're completely off the hook. From that point on, I'll be continuing to keep tabs on this case and to work with anything that comes to me using the same sources and resources I always have, but I won't be publishing anything about it unless it's a full story about what happened and what will happen next. I want to thank you for following along with this story or for jumping on board if you're just now getting here. Damien's case is a mess period. The entire situation, huge mess. And if you listen to season one, you know that Damien wasn't out doing altruistic deeds that weekend. He was trying to buy some drugs, and most people believe that if Damien hadn't been doing whatever he was doing that night, 
He'd have woken up the day after Memorial Day with a hangover maybe and some funny stories to tell. That's not how it worked out. One last thing. Before we get started this season, I've been asked to look deep into my own heart and answer one question that's been kind of echoing around inside its hollow chambers since I started. Why? What do I get out of this? The old standby, Justice for Damien, isn't holding water for my bravest mentors who've been pressing me recently to be more honest with myself and with all of you. The reality is that being the journalist who finds human remains or more accurately, who creates the conditions within which those remains can be found, that makes careers. It's undeniable, and I'm pretty unemployable. I don't have a ton of specialized skills. I'm horrible to be around a lot of the time because my moods are inconsistent and I'm sensitive to the vibes around me. And I despise being watched over and supervised. That's what makes journalism such a great gig for me. But independent journalism, because it appears that my mouth is no longer capable of filtering opinions through editor-friendly scripts. I've grown exponentially as a reporter over the course of the last seven, nearly eight years, but I've outgrown a traditional newsroom. Like any journalist, I do have that harpy edge. I know both a good story when I see one and a story that can sell. Damien's is both. But the reason I've outgrown traditional newsrooms is because I see Damien as a person, still, and so I need to tell a person-centered story about him. That's hard to do when there's no actual hard news about his case to report. So as one former editor, not my former editor, and a current mentor, said to me about the likelihood of building a career on finding Damien, that's a long shot. What else you got? I thought for a minute and answered that even if we never find Damien, if no one ever finds Damien, everyone who listens to this will know who Damien actually was. Without a badge or any police credentials, without any authority beyond the authority to ask questions and tell people the answers, the chances that I'm going to do anything that gets Damien found is no higher today than when I started this project. For me, the possibility of a career advancement based on this work has always been a theoretical cherry on top. Career-wise, the best I can hope for is a solid body of work that showcases my ability to produce audio, interview folks, wrangle a wild herd of words into a coherent and functional story, and manage a bunch of folks from a diverse set of backgrounds and areas of experience to invest in my efforts and add to them. To provide me with information or avenues to it, to help me understand the legal and personal aspects of this kind of storytelling. Career-wise, this project gives me one line on a resume, ultimately. It's a personal project for me. No one asked me to do it. I inserted myself into it. Having been in a lot of the same positions as Damien over the years, a fact I learned only through the work of investigating his case, but something I'd always, always suspected, I've spent a lot of time thinking about what I'm going to have contributed to the world when I leave it. I want to be a conduit for good shit direct from the universe and into people's lives. I'm a journalist. I'm a writer. I'm a storyteller. I needed a story on which to anchor my shot at an independent career doing what I love and am good at. I could have chosen any story. I chose Damien's because his deserved it. The brand I'm trying to build, Two Moms Media... Our tagline is audio storytelling with a soul. I wanted to get paid to do what I'm good at, but I want what I'm good at to do some good in the world. Ultimately, all I can hope for is that you're as absorbed in this case as I am by the end. 
as absorbed in the idea of Damien and as invested in answers as I am. For Damien's community to care as much about him as his family does, as much as it's possible for community to do that, that's what I get out of this. So season two starts now and we've got a few more things to talk about kids. So let's start. One of the things Brian and I really wanted last season was to talk to anyone who remembered Damien from his army days. Someone who served with them, a drill sergeant, anyone. I reached out to Fort Drum's media relations office a few times in the beginning of this project, asking about how to get records, asking for interviews, basically asking for anything. They more or less kept to their script. No records without a social security number. They'd ask around for fellow soldiers or leaders who'd known Damien, but not to hold my breath. Finally, in the fall of 2021, after I'd forced a bit more context for my request on the first person to pick up my call, she transferred me to someone with either more freedom to answer off-the-cuff questions or, more likely, just more time on his hands to humor me. My best bet, that person said, would be to reach out to members of social media groups for Damien's division, the Army's 10th Mountain Division. I did that, but again, no responses. No response is a pretty common response to questions about Damien, even from friends or people who knew him, especially in the beginning. The other thing this Fort Drum media rep told me, though, once I managed to distract from my specific questions about Damien to more general questions about cases like his, is that even if Damien hadn't already been discharged, that even if the army still air quotes owned him, they wouldn't devote much effort or many resources to finding him had he just, say, taken a leave and been home for a visit. Soldiers go AWOL all the time, this representative told me. Whether it's intentional, the result of a delay in travel to or from a leave, or something more sinister, like a soldier being the victim of crime while away from wherever they're stationed. The Army, he said, determines their response to absence based on the nature of the soldier in question. For your basic, everyday soldier, he told me, they tend to wait for them to get a speeding ticket or have some other minor run-in with law enforcement or some other government agency, which then triggers an ID check, and authorities will begin the process of returning to the army what amounts to its property. Those aren't this representative's words, but that's basically how it works. Sit still and wait. Someone will find them for us and send them back. Back in the beginning, my hope was that Damien hadn't been fully discharged, that there was some tie left between him and the army that... Perhaps military resources could have been then, or could be now, asked to help. Turned out, even if there were some ties still connecting Damien to the army, the army would have relied on local authorities to find and return him, just as his family was. One of the genres of rumors that come up infrequently, but enough to warrant a conversation at this point, are those that center around a sort of conspiracy theory. Damien was actually a highly trained and valuable specialized soldier and had been recruited into some secret mission that either ended badly or required some sort of disappearance from public life to sustain. It sounded crazy to me in the beginning, but having his separation paperwork, the summary of his military life from the day he started up to the day he left, could help me either debunk or confirm the possibility of that. But being just one person and with a ton of other leads in more attainable directions at the time, I put that rumor on the back burner. As we neared the start of production for the season, though, I was able to get a copy of Damien's DD-214, his separation document. 
I was super excited to get it, mostly because it required a lot more work once I had a family member on standby to make the request than I expected. I was actually pretty sure by the morning it showed up in my email that I would never get a copy of it in time for production. But then there it was. So I rushed to my inbox and eagerly waited for the PDF to turn from a generic icon to a revelatory holy grail on my screen. What it turned into, though, just looked like a really complex math equation, mostly. A DD-214, a certificate of release or discharge from active duty, is issued to any military service member upon completion of active duty or at least 90 days of active duty training. It's how veterans get benefits, jobs, and otherwise verify their service to anyone who needs verification of it. It shows what someone did throughout their military career, outlines any awards or decorations they earned, and explains the conditions and timing under which they served overseas, entered, and exited service. Damien's DD-214 had a ton of information on it, information that would be integral to helping me show you guys what Damien was like as a soldier, I mean, it was the best possible source of information aside from an actual human who either served with or managed him during his time there. And I had very little clue what it was actually telling me. So I reached out to my co-producer, Brian Hagberg of Your Daily Local to give me and all of you a more narrative and natural read through of this document. Here's Brian. Well, this is a pretty standard uh, DD-214 and anybody who's been in the military is familiar with the DD form 214. That's your uh, discharge of service, discharge from active duty. Pretty standard form here. Nothing uh, in particular that would stick out uh, really in, in any way that would be uh, much different from uh, pretty much anybody who, who had gone into the service and, and decided either, you know, not to reenlist or to retire or whatever um, name, what branch, Social Security number, uh, rank, uh, looks like Damien was a specialist in the Army, uh, pay grade of E4. In 2001, that would have meant he was making, uh, before taxes, $1,423.80 every pay. They get paid twice a month. Uh, and that would not have included um, housing allowance, food allowance, clothing, things like that. Um, that's just his base pay in 2022 dollars uh, in E4 because he's got uh, he has a, a more than two years of service time uh, at the point this paper uh, this paperwork was filed in 2022 dollars uh, he would have been making let's see an E4 uh, 2515 dollars and 80 cents. Uh, every pay period. Again, that does not include uh, housing, food, uh, things of that nature. Uh, let's see, like place of entry, Buffalo. That's pretty standard. Again, for people around here, um, when you go to when you go to MEPS or your medical in processing, um, I, I know my my wife was in the Air Force and she she still went in through through Buffalo. Um, that's just pretty standard for people from Warren to kind of get sent up there uh, for all those. Um, you know, the paperwork filing, the medical exams, all that stuff. His home address uh, at the time of the separation. Uh, his last duty assignment. So he was in Company B, 4th Battalion, uh, 31st Infantry Unit at Fort Drum. Was being transferred to D Detachment 1, Company B, 1st Battalion, 
Uh, looks like that would have been Pennsylvania Army Reserve. And so a lot of a lot of people maybe don't under understand when you enlist, you know, for example, uh, when my wife was going through the process, you had the option of, uh, you know, six or eight years. But the 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 enlistment time, um, because you'll see up uh, up where it says number six reserve um, obligatory term date is October 16th of 2005. So even though he served his three years of active duty um, and, and he's deciding not to reenlist and is going to be discharged from active service, um, he still has to do reserve, at least check in once a year. Um, if something were to happen, he could be called up, uh, you know, as a, uh, from reserve to active. Um, and again, that's just, it's fairly standard. You have your, your total enlistment time, uh, looks like for him would have been six years. Um, but they count the time that, uh, you know, from the time you go, from the time you go through MEPS until you actually go to basic training, um, gets counted as reserve time. And then whatever, whatever amount you have left from, your discharge from active duty, they add on and you have to be in your reserve time until that date. So that's what the the reserve, that number six item uh, up in the upper right corner, uh, right next to his birth date. Uh, and then primary specialty, he was an infantryman, served two years, eight months. Uh, and then next to that just shows his, uh, when he first entered active duty, his official separation date looks like would have been uh, so he entered in on July 8th of 1998. Looks like his official separation date was July 7th of 2001. Uh, and his last, uh, his E4 pay grade uh, went into effect September 8th of 2000. Uh, decorations, medals, citations. So these are, these are what you would see on the ribbon rack um, that's worn uh, on the chest of the, the dress uniforms, um, his NATO medal, uh, armed forces, expeditionary medal, army service ribbon, uh, marksmanship qualification, uh, with rifle and with grenade for him. And so those would have been, uh, part of his, his ribbon rack that he would have worn. And it looks like he took a, um, a vehicle driver training course at one point for a week in 1999 and and again, it's just just your standard paperwork showing you know subject to active duty recall, muster duty, um, completed a tour in Bosnia, and then the, just the signatures you know both his and his uh, whoever the, whoever for the army was signing his his service separation. Again, type of separation is released from active duty, uh, honorable service, authorized under the army regs. Um, and that, and again, that's just, that's just army code down there at the very bottom under the signatures. He completed his active service requirement and decided not to reenlist further. So he was then released from service again, just a very standard DD form 214. A lot of service members <laughs> I know, um, we're very proud of, Hey, I got my DD two two fourteen 214, uh, when they're, when they had decided their active time was up, 
Um, and again, this is just this is just what your what your separation paperwork looks like. Pretty simple. It's a form. It's it's a one for most people. It's a one page form just like this. You know, I mean, there where you would really look for maybe things that would stand out. You know, if he was something other than an honorable service. You know, if he'd had excessive medals, badges, campaign ribbons, um, things like that. Maybe you know, if he'd had extensive military training, uh, multiple specialties, but. But again, this looks like a pretty standard one-term enlistment, and this is what you would expect to see uh, on most people's DD-214 from from that time period. You would expect to see, you know, those those specific medals and and approximately those kind of ranks and and uh, pay grades uh, for somebody who was in for for three years and in that time period. So, as far as the tip I get, relatively occasionally, but enough to take a moment to discuss, that Damien was brought in on some military thing that either got him killed or required him to bloop into a whole other life, effectively disappearing from this one he had here altogether. Given what's here on his official separation paperwork from the military, the theory for me is a hard no. I'm comfortable saying we can debunk it based on the DD-214, as well as statements from friends and family I've gotten over this past couple of years that indicate it's, as one so vividly put it, not fucking likely. And that may seem like a small thing. It is, comparatively speaking, when you take it within the context of the sheer volume of rumors and theories that exist without sufficient evidence to prove them. But when you're trying to pick one true thing out of a swirling eddy of not-true things... The more clarification you can inject into the situation, the better, in our opinion. We're basically going to kill two birds with one stone here because we decided, headed into this season, that we wanted to take a strong look at the time Damien spent back in Warren, home, full-time, before going missing. Thanks to this DD-214, we can tell you with much greater precision exactly how much time that was. Another small thing on the surface, but I'm all about that clarity. And a specific date that I can put on a timeline is, for me, one big gold standard of documentation. We know that Damien left the military in July of 2001 and returned to his father's property on Taft Place in the city of Warren. It's right next to Worley Industries, Damien's brother's place of employment at the time, and it's near St. Joseph's Catholic Church, one of the largest and most well-known in the city's dozen-plus places of worship. He would have had a short walk into town to what would soon become a central location in his mostly daily life, Master Skater Indoor Skate Park on 2nd Avenue in Warren, and he'd have lived nearly next door to one person who has become a central suspect in the public's mind and was questioned about Damien's disappearance by law enforcement in 2015, Frank Geiger. One resource we'll talk about at the end of this episode has come up since we wrapped season one which gives us a small glimpse into that initial landing on Taft Place and what day-to-day life may have been like for Damien as he started figuring out his first big post-military moves. When we talked to Frank Geiger and gave you the bullet points on the rumors that surround him as a potential suspect in Damien's disappearance in Season 1, but we'll go a bit deeper into that collection of stories and theories later on this season. But first, we need to take a quick break. When we come back, Damien's aunt, Anziette DiPiero, shares her memories of Damien as a nephew and as a young man establishing himself back in his hometown. 
We'll also talk about a document that Damien's family commissioned from a private investigator in the fall of 2002. Catch you on the other side, kids. I was recently asked if I had any headshots that made me look less crazy, and I did not. Thank God Phil Gilbert of Just Phil Photography in Warren, PA is a thing. I mean, he's not a thing, he's a person. Never mind. Look, nouns are nouns, and Phil is rad because if you load the experience of having your photo taken and every photo of yourself for that reason, Phil's your guy. Phil will make you smile for real, and here's the thing. He gets why you want the photos you want, so that feeling we're all trying to capture in a physical photograph, that's Phil's thing. If you want a photo of your family that translates easily to a cardboard cutout, you can probably just go to a department store photo studio, if you can even still find one. Best of luck with that, I guess. But if you want to look back on your special day, or memory, or human, and feel that feeling all over again, call Phil. Even if you want to look the opposite of not crazy, he can make you look utterly, utterly out of your mind, too. He's down for whatever. Visit JustPhilPhotography.com. That's J-U-S-T-P-H-I-L Photography.com. All the cool kids are doing it. When I initially sat down with Damien's aunt, Anziette, last spring, it was just around the time season one was wrapping up. I hadn't had enough time to get her on tape, but she had memories of Damien that covered the roughly 10 months between the time he was discharged from the army to his dad's place on Taft Place in Warren and the time he went missing the following spring. Anziette was 10 years old when Damien was born, but she was in that age group where she babysat him for a while as a younger girl. And they were more like friends than aunt and nephew, Anziette said. So as they both grew up and went out to establish their lives, Damien in the military and Anziette eventually in Ashtabula, Ohio, it was interesting for her to return to Warren to see what kind of man Damien was turning into. Here's Anziette with a few of those memories. So just tell me a little bit about what you remember of Damien. And you don't have to start when he came home, but just... Whatever comes to mind. I just want to hear Damien's stories. And cool. See, I have so many. And I know after you leave, I'll <laughs> think of more. Um, we were only 10 years apart. So, you know, like, they called me Aunt Anciet. Don't squeak for a long time. But um, we were close enough that we were friends. You know, but... I left for a lot of those, a lot of years. I mean, I babysat when they lived on the west side. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I came back, it was about the same time that he came back from the service. Mm -hmm. So we reconnected as adults, you know, and that was cool because I saw him as not my little squeak boy anymore. <laughs> you know. And uh, he and Stephen lived on the east end, and I lived on the east end on Hemlock Street and had just had a baby, mm -hmm. second story apartment. And, you know, Stephen and Damien had a phone. They lived behind a bike shop. And whenever I needed help, he would, okay, how about Friday afternoon? And up the street he would walk. He had um, had a really nice car, but, like, he didn't put oil in it. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, then didn't have a car, and then he didn't mind not having a car. 
Yeah, I'm like, are you going to get a car? Yeah, and he's like, well, maybe. Um, but he would walk the like four, five, six blocks up to my house, you know, help me put an air conditioner in the window in the summer because it was too heavy. Um, and we enjoyed the same books. So yeah. we had that connection, symbols, some um, theology. Yeah. He was into religions. I'm curious if um, he let me borrow a book, and I let him borrow many books, um, over that first summer that he was back. And the book that he let me borrow was way overdue, but he wasn't ready to take it back yet. It had the onk symbol. He had a tattoo, but he wanted to embellish it, so because he only had the outlined for a while. Um Damien, like, you know, this book is overdue. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm like, hey, take it. I'm, I can return it for you. I'm not ready to return it. I said, well, we'll let you, like, check it out again. You can you know? renew it. Renew it and stuff. So I've always wondered if somebody ever took that book. Oh, my gosh. Do you remember the title of it? I don't. Oh, my it gosh. Was, it was a thick book. I'm going to have to go look. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, he would come and help me. I'd look out my second-story window, and up the road, he'd be up and walk. He'd be coming in his trench coat. and He um, did wear a trench coat? Long, dark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So maybe charcoal. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a long time ago. And then we would meet my mom, Mimi, and get a fat daddy, and he would get a Zima. Yeah. And I make remember. fun of him for <laughs> drinking Zima. One of the things I never would have thought to ask, but which Anziette offered me right up front, is that she remembers thinking, your family should have had a Memorial Day get-together that weekend. If you're just jumping in now, we'll give you a quick recap of the basic highlights of Damien's last weekend, but we encourage you to go back and listen to Season 1 if you haven't already. We're going to get into the deeper details of the weekend Damien went missing, and the time between that happened to the time when he was officially reported missing with the local law enforcement, but we just can't sum it all up in three minutes of transition. It's worth the listen. We'll be here when you get back. Recall that Damien went missing on Saturday, May 25th, 2002, over the Memorial Day weekend. That holiday weekend is a huge part of the backdrop against which Damien's disappearance occurred. Town would have been full with people celebrating either at the bars or in backyard family picnics, Memorial Day is the kickoff to summer in Warren County, and with 900 square miles of largely forested wild areas, Warren County is kind of the place to be in the summertime. From canoeing and camping to fishing, hiking, and even some low-level rock climbing, this county in northwestern Pennsylvania has it all. It's easy to disappear voluntarily into the forests and onto the rivers and waterways anytime one wants to, most of the summer long. The night before he went missing, Damien had a party at his apartment, 19 Cedar Street, on Warren's east side. Several people who were eventually questioned in Damien's disappearance were at that party, including his best friend, Dave, and several of his brother's friends. Damien's brother, Stephen Sharp Jr., lived with Damien in two different places after he left Taft. The two of them lived first above a bike shop on the far east end of Pennsylvania Avenue, the city's main drag. Later that year, the two moved to a shared apartment on Cedar Street before Stephen moved out. Several people stayed and partied all night at Damien's, according to Dave, who said he left in the early morning around 6 a.m. and went home to sleep it off. Saturday, Damien's friend Danica told us last season the two of them went for a high ride. 
They drove out to Brown Run Road and up Forest Road 160, a popular, deeply rural area where folks camp on weekends like these, both back in the day and now, 20 years later. The campsites at Jake's Rocks Recreation Area are still some of the most popular around the Kinzu Dam in Allegheny Reservoir, which represents one major swath of land where many people will swear is the place Damien's remains are most likely to be found. When they got back to town Saturday around early to mid-afternoon, Danica told us she dropped him off at home and planned to meet him later for a party he told her during their high ride was going on in that same area around Brown Run or Forest Road 160, she said. She never saw Damien again. Damien's brother, Stephen, was initially supportive of this podcast when I started the process of running down people who might be able to contribute stories or memories about that time. Stephen was adamant from our early conversations that how the Brown Run Forest Road 160 stories came to be is beyond him. Damien had a knee injury at the time, Stephen told me, and the spot they'd initially planned to camp at that weekend, dozens of miles in another direction, near a recreation area known as Heart's Content, had become out of the question by Saturday. Between that knee and the rain that was coming, or had come overnight, Stephen told me last year, the plan had changed from Heart's Content Woods Party to a simple repeat of the Friday evening thing at Damien's place. Damien visited his brother at Master Skater Indoor Skate Park on 2nd Avenue in downtown Warren after returning from his high ride, then met with several of his own and Stephen's friends. Cats named Bryce, Mike, and Patrick. Patrick gave Damien money to buy some weed, he told investigators at the time, and he repeated to me last year. Then, Bryce drove Damien to a place he thought he'd be able to make that deal. Bryce, by all accounts, dropped Damien off at the corner of Prospect and Dahl Streets, a few blocks from Damien's apartment in Warren, late Saturday afternoon. Damien gave Bryce his apartment key, Bryce told investigators then, and said to go back to his place and wait, and he'd be back in a couple of hours with the weed Patrick had paid for. So, Bryce told investigators, that's exactly what he did. Damien never did show back up. So had they just had that Memorial Day picnic themselves that year, Anziet said, maybe none of that would have ever happened. I mean, he would come to, you know, all of the holiday stuff, Mm -hmm. which makes me really, I mean, I just, Early on, we're like, why don't we have a memorial day get together? Because he would have been with he me instead. He would have shown up at least, you know, if he even if he didn't stay the whole time. But because you know, it would always come up the hill Christmas time, yeah. cherry curry. Um, I have videos of him just kind of in the background and like <laughs> dark hair. You know, when he would come when he would dye his hair dark and yeah. try to be all dark and cynical and stuff. But he was he really or was always, that just no, an affectation? No. He'd always get a smirk out of him. Mm-hmm. You just have to look at him long enough. <laughs> and yeah. Start laughing. And he would start laughing. Um he was just a good guy. I really liked the adult that he had become, um, and I liked the conversations that we had, um, and that he really cared about family. You know, he didn't he didn't have it easy. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I was there here and there, like I didn't live with my mom, but you know, I mean, Warren's not a very big place, so <laughs> I, you know, I eventually became Ian Stevens' babysitter yeah. on the West End, and you know, so I. They were kind of like here, there, because mm-hmm. because of their parents' adult relationships, mm-hmm. and you know, he just kind of forgave everybody. 
Was he? he As was, an adult, he was just like, "Hey, shit happens," you know. Seriously. And I love my mom. I love my dad. You know what? I love that. And I struggle with my family relationships yeah. that still as an adult, and I don't have that forgiveness, that natural tendency. Right? And he did. Yeah. Um, and he also tolerant, mm-hmm. like tolerance and adapting. Like, okay, so my mother, you know, picture my mom at the Buckeye Apple Festival, <laughs> um, you know, waiting for us to go get her sandwich and a piece of pie or whatever it's packed i turned around i come out i got her pie i got her weird sandwich bison burger (laughs) sandwich or whatever they had and she's sitting with this group of goth kids (laughs) how old was she at the time oh so well it was like 2002 okay i don't know i mean she was like definitely curmudgeon at that point i mean she was retired so she would be like you know Stood out among that crowd. And did. And I was like, all right, Shirley, like, what are you doing with these goth kids? And I said, Mom, we got a table over here, you know. Because she was chatting them up, and they were chatting. They were engaged with her, too. I was like, okay. So she gets up and comes over to our table. She's like, oh, this is Alyssa, and this is so-and-so, and this is so-and-so. And I just thought she would have never done that in a million years had she, did we not have Damien. Because she you know, yeah. like that whole thing about being dirty and just because of the way somebody looks isn't, I mean, it proves I, to her that that's not. Although Anziette was living in Ohio at the time, she said her first advice to Damien's mom, Janine, when Janine called to tell her what was happening was that they should call the 1-800 number associated with Damien's unemployment claims. For the first year after leaving the military, family told us last season, Damien collected unemployment. I mean, he collected this unemployment like clockwork and lived check to check, basically. When the checks came in, he spent them pretty quickly. Both Stephen and Damien's Aunt Dana confirmed this for me when we spoke last year. And yet, too, recalls that part of the reason she saw Damien as much as she did during the time that they overlapped as county residents was so that he could use her phone to call and see whether his unemployment had been deposited. It was usually Fridays, she said, and if the deposit had been made, they'd go get that Zima. If Damien hadn't pulled that unemployment, Anziette told Janine, something was very wrong. Do you remember finding out that he was missing? Were you living here? You were living here at the time then. No, actually, I, I was in Ashtabula. Okay. So 2001, I had my first. Okay. I got my job in Ashtabula. And so, no, it was a phone call from Okay. I think Janine called me. Oh, it could have been I don't remember the right. initial get go. I just remember getting up and going, like scooping Freya, throwing a bunch of clothes in a bag and coming to Warren. A lot of one of the pieces of feedback that I get a, a lot of the time is that um, people are like, I get that they didn't want to jump. Um, the gun and report him. But I think there was this narrative that, you know, there was a concern that Damien would be pissed off if he came back and found out that the cops were involved. Right. Um, was there any hesitation? Like, did you think, oh, he'll be back? Or did you think, no, this is serious right now. We got to deal with this. So during that, like, two weeks. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. I mean, I wasn't consulted at all about, right. like, you know, should we 
do this? Should we do that? I knew that they had gone to the police. I knew that this, you know, I said, one of the reasons Damien would come to my house was Mm -hmm. so he could call, uh, I think it was an 800 number. Mm -hmm. Oh, so he and Stephen must not have had a phone. How did we get in touch with each other? I mean, I would cruise around the back of their, the back of the bike shop. Yeah, he was always outside for some reason. Said <laughs> you're paying for an apartment right <laughs> out here, um, and maybe that's how we did our connect of when yeah. when he would come over. It was usually Fridays though. But um, I said, you know, call that eight hundred number and see if he didn't pick up his check for six hundred or six hundred fifty dollars. Then, and, and that for me, wrong. and I know for Dana, yep. was the thing. Something's really wrong because nobody's gonna walk away from. Well, especially him. She said he was waiting for that to come in because he had things he wanted to buy, like tongue mm-hmm. rings. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it became more and more. But just not knowing the process mm-hmm. and, like, always hearing you have to wait two weeks. Yeah. Knowing that he was an adult. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, he just, like, missed that window of being able to have help from the, um, exploited children yeah I mean which but they you know they have come around Mm -hmm. to include more males and older yeah we've got a ton to cover this season guys I'm not gonna lie and we've got one new resource to work with in the beginning of the investigation toward the fall of 2002 when Damien had been missing for quite some time family began to wonder whether a private investigator might be better able to get them answers than local law enforcement. We'll talk about the issues between family and law enforcement from the beginning of the case throughout this season, but for now what you need to know is that the family was not happy. They did not feel like enough was being done, and they wanted to know what all of the people around Damien when he went missing knew themselves. So the family hired a retired state trooper, John Herzog, to look into the case, as well as to help them communicate with police who they saw as unresponsive and disinterested in Damien's disappearance by that time. Anziette was not involved in that process, but she recalls clearly the family's frustration when Herzog, who'd been hired by them, stopped returning their phone calls. I'd say that the one thing that eats at me the most when I think about the investigation and think about things is um, Herzog. Like, that whole department and that whole... um, Mouths closed, um, you know, have, having our, I say our, but the private investigator mm-hmm. that Janine and Paul paid for and my mother um, to gather information and that information not be given to the family who paid for the services uh, and then to be in the DA's crawl um, and they, nothing. Nothing from the DA in all these years. No thanks. Give you that information. Damien's Aunt Dana, who we heard from in season one, and who was one of the first people in the apartment after Dave, Damien's best friend, called to tell family that something was wrong, recalls the process of hiring Herzog to look into things and recalls the frustration of not getting access to the information they'd paid Herzog for. We're looking into hiring a private investigator. I, um, I don't even, we didn't have internet. I'm trying to think how we found one. Do you look up in the yellow pages, PI? 
you know, and we did come across, there were two guys that were working together that I believe were ex-police officers or something. And I'm just remember like one of them was very ill. So the other one wasn't doing anything. And I think it may have been them that mentioned Herzog or something. So, um, but when I called him, you know, they said that he was a retired state trooper. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's when, you know, we were looking for someone to do something, you know, worried about what kind of money yeah. someone like that costs. Yeah. What, they, do you remember anything about the cost? Oh, I'm trying to think. Uh, there was an hourly thing. Yeah, it was, you know, it was going to be an hourly while he was working on And I, I, not positive, but I believe it was broken down into 10-minute things. So if he was on the phone for, you know, eight minutes, it was rounded up to 10, okay. you know, or something like that. So it was charged by, you yeah. know, that type of thing. Yeah. Kind of like, I guess, attorneys are now, you know what I mean? When they make a phone call. Right. You know, you're charged, they keep track of that type of thing. So um, I believe money was put down for some, and I don't know the number. I'm thinking for some reason $1,500 comes to mind. It was, you know. Like a retainer almost. A retainer type of thing, yeah. Okay. And then uh, I believe there was another time that money was exchanged. He had uh, met with me at my house in Sugar Grove at the time and I don't know if I was given a bill or what it was but I remember that money you know some money was exchanged at that time and some of that was money that was donated and raised you know and um, because we had a bank account set up and but at this time you know, he said he's come across a few things he wanted to get them together before he shared that information with us, you know, have it together and maybe talk to a couple more people. And I agreed. And I believe it was in a phone call that he had said to me, he's come across some information. And yes, we were the ones that were hiring him, but could we please, you know, put any kind of report off for right now? I know this is your, you know, your report, but I don't want any of this information to get out right at this point. Okay. Um, I said I would talk with Janine and them, and I did, and my sister Anne's yet, and we agreed at that time, you know, that, okay, he could round up what he needed. And then... There was an expectation that you would get a follow-up we were going to get a follow-up we were going to get a report of you know everything that was coming but he had something he was on to something and he needed more time to investigate or did he did he indicate at that time that he wanted to also speak with law enforcement he did not say anything to me about speaking with law enforcement okay he um he had something he had something there okay and he didn't want like for us to know and then maybe slip something to somebody. You gotcha. know, wanted to make sure any of the news that was coming in was fresh news, right. not contaminated. Or yes, or even, you know, if somebody would find out right. something about all this. Um, and then I believe, and I'm not sure who it was that called, but the police, I believe it was Shemeni, because that's who I generally spoke with. Um, that they wanted to speak with Herzog. They would like to know what he has. Okay. 
because they believed that he had gotten some information um, and kind of wanted to know if the family, it came across as if would we be willing to pay his hourly wage, you know, to sit down and talk to the police and give them what they had. And I, you know, we weren't in a money position at this point. You know, I didn't feel that us paying for him to talk to the police, we're hiring him. He's doing, gonna pay this gentleman to do your job is how I took it at the time. And, um, but within a day or two days, I was notified by the Warren City Police that, and again, Shemeni, I believe, that Herzog had agreed to come in okay. on his own time okay. and share his information, you know, go over their information together. And we agreed to that. We said that was fine. Um, but at one point after that, Herzog stopped returning phone calls. Uh, if I did, when, uh, like, when he really just, pushed me off, Danny, you, you don't know how all this works. You have to give it time. But we had paid for, yeah. you know, and I'm like, if there's a dollar amount or something you're, you're needing, we will pay for it. We want what we've paid for. And we never got anything. He just dismissed my phone calls. I'm not sure if my sister Anne's yet called or if Janine had called. I believe Janine had tried, but same thing, just nothing. And was there ever an attempt with the police to find out if they had spoken with him and if they had gotten? Everything was kind of, we got, we got some, we got something, but we don't, we can't share it. Okay. You know, we, we, we can't get this information on the streets. And anytime the police had told me that mm-hmm. I respected it, I respected it. I, um, I truly did. And at this point in my life, I still respected. I know there's things they know that I don't know. Mm-hmm. Me knowing isn't going to solve the case. Right. You know, right. and um, they don't want the information out there. And I understand that now I have, uh, oh, at one time we picketed the yeah. police department, yeah. you know, my whole family was size. We're down mm-hmm. there. And, uh, you know, we put it out that we were doing this and you know, they just weren't doing their job. They weren't doing their job. They weren't doing their job. But we were a frustrated, heartbroken, mm-hmm. disappointed family. So many different emotions all at one time. It must have been so overwhelming. Yes. Just to even. But now that I'm an older, I guess it was an adult 20 years ago. Oh. But um, I, I also, you know, have family in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And with talking with even the police through this stuff, I do understand. We became uh, members of a group, which Janine became very high in, yeah. the Q, out of North Carolina. And we would go down for like seminars and they, you know, we would talk with, you know, retired police officers, police officers still working. I mean, they brought in all kinds of, you know, different people and we learned the way it worked and that there was information they can't share with us and us knowing it isn't going to solve the case. Right. How do you feel now about having access to it? If you could have access to it, do you feel like, um, we've talked about it in the past and you know, everything was just always kind of brushed over. And, um, 
And, but now we're 20 years later, I have called the Warren City Police with my number and my name and, you know, saying that Damien is my nephew and it was related to that, um, you know, because I would like to see any of the files that uh, Herzog, P, you know, the PI that we paid for, you know, am, am I st are we still entitled to those? Mr. Herzog has passed mm -hmm. since all of this has occurred. Um, and we've never gotten anything. Yeah. So I don't know if the police would give that. So last season, the one thing that really bothered me was my inability to coherently reconstruct the events of Damien's last 48 hours. Even speaking with many of the people around Damien in those hours last year, without the ability to compare what they told me to what they told investigators in 2002, it's hard to really gain a lot. In the best of cases, you're working against the fallacy of human memory. You heard that fallacy in this episode, as Anziette recalled at first that Damien and Stephen had a phone, which she used to communicate with them. That was at the top of her interview. She later remembered that one of the reasons Damien came to her place as much as he did that summer was to call in his unemployment claims, because he didn't have a phone. It was mostly Fridays, she said. Remember? I was initially going to edit around that refinement of memory in the sections of Anziette's interview I chose for this episode, but I wanted to leave it in, and I wanted to highlight it here to show exactly what kinds of obstacles one encounters in investigations like this. These inaccurate memories don't mean anything except that the human memory is fallacious. That's been proven time and again in multiple clinical studies of the subject. It's laid out in decades of peer-reviewed literature. Anziette said it herself when she was trying to remember what color Damien's trench coat was. It was long, dark, she said. Was it charcoal? 20 years is a long, long time to retain a detail like that. What exists in the notes John Herzog made are the shades of gray regarding that weekend that help us and Damien's family envision what people remembered happening then. Within months of when it happened, their memories were recorded. How and why Herzog stopped communicating with the family remains unclear, but the details of the day Janine hired him are well documented in that report. He had Janine sign a release, hiring him to investigate her son's disappearance gathered around Shirley Allred's dining room table in Cherry Grove in September of 2002. It was witnessed by Shirley and Dana. The issue of those notes will be the focus of next week's episode. So until then, kids, eyes and ears open, and let's find Damien. Smoke is a weekly true crime podcast written and told by me, Stacy Gross of Two Moms Media. Your producers are me and Brian Hagberg of Your Daily Local in Warren, PA. Our theme song is Diddy Six, written and produced by my father, Bob Gross. Thanks to Damien's family and friends who've helped provide information, stories, and memories for this episode. And a big thanks to Renee and Erica at Taylor Streets for letting me do a last minute interview in their dining room last week. Super rad. Much appreciated. If you like this podcast, please take a second to rate and review on whichever platform you're using to listen. It makes a huge difference and it helps more people hear Damien's story. If you have information to share with police about Damien's case, reach out to Detective Tiffany Post at the City Born Police Department, 814-723-2700. If you have information you don't want to share with police, memories, or stories about Damien, reach out to me at 814-230-5855. Texting is the quickest way to get at me. If you're not sure whether what you have to tell me is worth telling me, it is. Please hit send on it.